Production of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in the genre, but had their life changed by it in a major way. And today on the show, the legend, there's no other way to put it, the front man of lard, the front person of the Dead Kennedys, of Guantanamo School of Medicine, the owner of Alternative Tentacles Records, the uh, arguably the most influential vocalist to come out of hardcore, Jello Biafra is on the show today. Oh my gosh, it's a good one. But more on that in a second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. You can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. To support this show, the best way to do that is to go over to iTunes and to subscribe to this podcast, write a review, rate it, or tell all your friends. Check this thing out on Spotify and all other things. Put it on your Spotify playlist and all, you know, just generally uh, advertise for free for me. That's the best way to do it. Uh, and speaking of sponsoring and supporting this show, this show is presented to you and brought to you by the good folks at Vans. Vans shoes, of course, are, um, you know, helping me out this summer and making me uh, be able to do this podcast and finally be able to, you know, get some new gear and do all sorts of fun stuff like go to the House of Vans shows, which is what I'm going to be doing today as soon as I'm done recording this intro and you can check out this podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast today, the day it dropped, I'm going to be in New York City or Brooklyn, New York, in fact, uh, for the House of Vans show featuring the Downtown Boys and Royal Headache. Uh, if you are in New York today, I think it's already all filled up the RSVP, but if not, go to houseofvans.com. There's going to be a list of all the other great House of Vans events happening all summer, you know, like this one that's happening today featuring the Royal Headache uh, people and the Downtown Boys people, two bands that I've always wanted to have on this show, and now I'm going to get to go and do that live in New York. So uh, go over to houseofvans.com. Check it out. Thank you once again to the people at Vans for, you know, making this uh, possible and getting me able to, you know, go and fly around and do all this fun stuff. Um, you know, they've, they've helped me out. You don't have to do any surveys. You don't have to do anything else. So that's that's all they want me to do is tell you about that. So, you know, Vans has, uh, you know, made it, made it possible for me to do this. So thank you very much to them. Uh, go out there and check out houseofvans.com, and I will see you in New York. Get there early because we're going to be – pulling 30 or 40 people from that line to come in and see this podcast. Um, so get down to the House of Vans in Brooklyn. Line up early if you can, because I'm going to be there to do this live, which is awesome, because that's, you know, really uh, the, the, uh, the one of the most fun ways I get to do this podcast is when I get to do it live. So if you are there, I will see you this evening. Um, and thank you once again to Chuck and Brooke and everyone at Vans for uh, making this so uh, easy for me to do. On to today's show. Today on the show, I gotta, first of all, I gotta thank my my good, good pal, friend of the show, former guest, someone that's aided the show in incalculable ways. She has helped us get incredible guests on this show. She has uh, babysat some guests <laughs> that had to come on this show. And, uh, yeah, she just has really uh, set this up. I'm talking about my friend Melanie Kay. Uh, she is someone that works publicity for a lot of bands. But in this case, she just did it because she wanted to see Jello Biafra on the show, who's a friend of hers. 
and she made this happen. So I really got to thank Melanie so much for for you know putting this all together. Also, Eric Duell, uh, Melanie's husband, uh, former member of the band The Exploders, a future guest because he is a awesome, awesome friend and someone that put up with a uh, a lot of record nerddom. He's a record nerd himself, but I think Jello and my obsession with records challenges even the most nerdy of record nerds with uh with uh, our ability to look at records for just hours and hours and hours and uh poor eric was stuck having to figure out car logistics and all sorts of other things and was unable to enjoy the record shopping itself for the most part so eric and melanie Thank you both for making this happen. And I think you both owe Melanie and Eric a thank you as well, because in the words of my brother, Tristan Abraham, the producer of this show, this is the best one yet. So I'm not going to say that. I don't know if it is the best one yet. I'm going to leave that to you to judge. But it is, I think, a great one. I've had a a really fun time recording it. Jello Biafra, for those of you who don't know, is someone that changed the face of the genre of punk and hardcore forever, changed the face of music with the Tipper Gore PMRC stuff and the challenges they had for freedom of expression and that he had to fight for. Uh, Jello is someone that, like, you've listened to this show before. If you've checked out past episodes, you've heard that how many times the Dead Candies come up as people's first exposure to this. Um, they're certainly one of my first exposures to this, and they are a band, and he is a person, I should say, that continues to kind of embody the ethos that he's had the whole time. Like, Jello is one of those people that you can set your watch by in the way that he kind of governs his business because he has decided that he wants to do things a certain way and has made sure that, and had to fight to make sure that he can do that stuff in a certain way. He is someone that I find incredibly inspiring, not just as a front person in a band, but as a record collector, his taste in music, his ability to kind of explore weirder esoteric genres and things like that has inspired me to do the same. Uh, Yeah, I'm very, very excited for you to hear this. I don't want to blather on too much longer because you want to hear this. So uh, I'm just going to leave it to to that. There's nothing really more for me to say. Uh, This is a fun one. Uh, Once again, everyone tonight at the House of Vans in Brooklyn, New York for the Royal Headache Show with Downtown Boys. Come out and see this thing live. And uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Jello Biafra on Turned Out a Punk. Our friend King Khan tried to set this up too, and so I feel like this is completing a, uh, a dream of his and mine right now. Well, yeah, he meant well, but I do have protocol for this. For example, if we're in the same room and there isn't a bunch of other important things like going through record bins (laughs) that uh, precludes it, uh, here we are. I mean, I I get sit up for so many interviews, I decline almost all of them because I just, it would be all I would do otherwise. Another rule with all the people, I'm writing a book about anarchism. I'm writing a book about the history of punk. I'm making a documentary about this particular band or whatever. All of those, my rule is, I'm the last person you interview. (laughs) And sadly, in a way, 
it means that 90% of them then don't happen because somebody didn't finish their project. <laughs> well, we are, this podcast, we are now hundreds of episodes in. And the reason this is so important that you come on this podcast is you are many people's first exposure to punk and hardcore. Many it is people, an honor to be a gateway drug. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, not just a gateway drug, I think a gateway ambassador. Because I think what you embodied and what you still embody as far as, you know, looking at the world from a cynical, intelligent perspective, like, that's one of the greatest takeaways anyone can take from punk. Yeah, I think part of that is just um, trying to encourage people not to be afraid of their own curiosity and their own intelligence. I mean, East Bay Ray has gone on record saying he thought my lyrics were too complicated and that they should have been censored and whatnot, but... uh, I don't mind putting in references so obscure that you really have to challenge yourself. Oh, not challenge, like like just, oh, what's that? I want to find out what that is, which, of course, with Googling and everything is easier than it's ever been. So it's nice to run into as many uh, people, late teens, early 20s as I do, who know where I got my name from. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the surreal way the two images collide in the mind. Jello, of course, we know what that is. And then Biafra was a part of uh, Nigeria, the southeast corner, who tried to secede in the late 60s. And maybe that war lasted into the early 70s. It was overshadowed, of course, by Vietnam. But there were relief missions. Even Kurt Vonnegut, among others, was involved in that. Because the uh, Nigerian army, with a little bit of British and even some American help, surrounded the attempted Republic of Biafra and uh, starved him to death, basically. Choked him off, and so all the pictures of the starving Biafran children lying all over the ground, bloated with their eyes out, and it was just gut-wrenching, and it was... uh, also, back in the time when they had actually show things like that and actual war casualties on the evening news, and then of, instead of the sanitized uh, Anderson Cooper's concerned face on one side of the screen and some yapping punditoid they hired from a modeling agency on the other side of the screen talking about the same Donald Trump scandal for the next 45 minutes to avoid talking about anything else, let alone showing footage of the same kind of thing, what drones do when they blow somebody up or what's really going on in Syria or some of the other battles against ISIS, you name it. Mm-hmm. Well, before you became so Biafra, Biafra. So, so Biafra is basically the the, rec, the recognized worldwide symbol of starvation and genocide. Well, I wanted and that's why I used it. Well, that's the thing. It's like that, you know, your name, Jello Biafra. Like that's the one of the one of the the Mount Rushmore of this entire genre. And I want to take you back though to before that name came into place. When Are you, you just saying that because I have rocks in my head? Is that <laughs> no, what you say? I'm saying that because you put the rock in my head, the punk rock in my head, Jello. But I wanted to take you back to when you first heard punk. Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? It wasn't a genre yet okay. defined that way. I mean, I would say the closest relative that I got into the earliest um would probably be when I uh, 
found out about this used record store near my high school called Trade a Tape and Records, and you couldn't listen before you buy in there yet, but they had 50 cent and 25 cent records. And I'd already been liberated the year before when I bought Tyranny and Mutation by the Blue Oyster Cult just on a whim because I just got this hunch it might be good and it was on sale. <laughs> and, uh, you know, two weeks later, maybe one week, it was my favorite album and stuff. So I thought, aha, I could, uh, I'm not going to rely on radio, even smooth FM radio that might grudgingly play a Uriah Heap song in between smoothly talking about the Eagles and Dave Mason, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't need that anymore. I'm just going to go by hunches now. Not all of them turned out, but at the same time, and you pro- I probably talked about this in Crate Diggers and some of the others, but, you know, being in the, in, you know, outside of Denver, Colorado was kind of a cultural desert to try and find out what was really going on. It was one of the ground zero testing grounds for who's going to be the next Eagles or Firefall, and then we'll John Denver country. Swap it out with a Scientology jazz fusion. One Denver, <laughs> he was from Texas, actually. But, Real name John Offenheimer, I believe. But uh, anyway, um, what what I have access to, you know, every Sunday we'd get the Sunday Denver Post delivered. And, oh, something about Alice Cooper. Well, no, it was the local critic lambasting Alice Cooper for being Alice Cooper. He could probably write pretty ballads. (laughs) Who is this writer? (laughs) But then I noticed this writer, Jared Johnson, seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of things he didn't like. He would say that Paul Simon and the Bee Gees were the greatest composers of the 20th century. But then you'd get things like, Black Sabbath is almost as bad as the MC5. I thought, who are the MC5? I must find out more. And then off to trade a tape, and there, there's a 50-cent MC5 album and stuff. And that was back in the USA, which I didn't realize wasn't the best one then, but at least then quickly led me to find Kick Out the Jams, and then things really started happening. And, and by, by then, I'd at least read a review in the one issue of Rolling Stone I somehow had access to, of Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges, but I couldn't figure out what on earth it was because the review just says, The Ig. Nobody does it better. Nobody does it worse. In fact, nobody does it at all. And I think, and I thought that was, it was either Lenny Kay or Lester Bangs who wrote that review. It's like, but still, what is this record? And then we found it connected to the Detroit thing, MC5, Raw Power comes into trade a tape. Well, I guess before that, I found the first album in the 50 Cent bin. Yeah, this is pretty good. And then Raw Power was way better. And then another Denver Post critic named G. Brown dumped his collection at Trade Tape, so they're trying to sell through it for a dime apiece. And there was Funhouse, sealed. So life improved even more. So maybe that was the beginning of the exposure to punk, unless you count... You know, the sheer ferocity of Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf and how much that band scared people mm-hmm. at the time. Oh, they're singing about drugs because of the pusher, even though that was an anti-drug song, one of the most powerful ones ever written. 
and um, but or you can go rewind further because I first discovered or got turned on to rock and roll by accident by my father playing with a radio dial to get me to go to sleep when I was in second grade and I hear rock and roll I want it I like this and then there was no stopping me quickly I mean the Beatles were the one you could identify with so other people would know you liked the music but I would much preferred early Rolling Stones and Paul Revere and the Raiders, who never get the credit they deserve for how many other local, you know, back from the grave and pebbles, chestnuts of bands were copying them. You know, the pretty things were not exactly well known in this country. So uh, (laughs) until Mike Stacks went to work years after the fact, but uh, Raiders were everywhere. So, and uh, so, so. I got into a lot of that, you know, it was so plus at that point the station in Denver KMN played local bands. So the Moonrakers who have great garage singles were on the air, the Astronauts were on the air and um oh and then and then you had the one-offs like Psychotic Reaction and the Music Machine and uh and I kept track of those in my head later because I always liked them. Even the really early Bob Seger stuff that got on the radio, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man and then Lucifer. Those are great songs. So were you getting, like, it's just from rock radio and and by trial and error that you're finding out about this stuff? Did you have any peers that were into rock music like you were? Um, To some degree. Yeah. To some degree, although... I don't think it was till after I was out of high school that another one of my good friends got into the Stooges and record collecting too, and then a third one did, who was Joseph Pope, who'd later go on to co-found Angst, the SST band and stuff. So, uh, but it was overall it was pretty lonely being about the only person who liked this stuff or even seemed to like Black Sabbath for the most part in a town. I mean, I mean, sure the jocks like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin too, but. They were the jocks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, they were at football practice. I was at trade tape. <laughs> so I guess like you're finding about this stuff, you're kind of connecting these dots yourself. It's amazing also with Blue Oyster Cult how that band is so important as like a proto-punk band. Like from, you know, Patti Smith working with them to what's-his-face from Vom writing songs for him too. Like they have so many connections and then of course exposing you to it too. Yeah, well, it, it, it's more those tenuous connections than them sounding punk, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. Although in Sniffing Glue though, they give I remember like in the first issue of Sniffing Glue, they give Blue Oyster Cult a glowing review. Like Mark Which Smith, one? It's like I forget which one it's one of the early issues he's like Surely not Secret Treaties. I don't know. I don't I'm trying to Surely not one. the one with Don't Fear the Reaper on it. No, definitely not that the one. The only ones I can think of would be would be Tyranny and Mutation and that live album on your feet or on your knees. I'll, I'm gonna I'll would, fix you it have in the to intro. check that. Yeah. I'm yeah. Check I wonder, it in the intro. wonder which one that was. But so where so you're connecting all these dots yourself at this point. When did you kind of realize that there was like a, a, a little bit of an undercurrent scene. I guess it hadn't galvanized to a scene yet, but like when were you were you kind of picking up on those pieces at this point? Well, the first time I saw the term punk used, it was just to describe what's now called 60s garage. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people don't call it 60s punk anymore because that abuse got a, that term got abused too much, <laughs> basically. And um, yeah, the grassroots are 60s punk. No, I don't think so. But so, um, 
Same as the overused terms like heavy psych, or now everything gets labeled titty shaker and stuff. I really haven't heard that one yet. It's supposed to be a particular kind of dance and jungly okay. rhythm and bluesy voodoo novelty stuff. Okay. Stranded in the jungle might qualify. I don't okay. know. I'm trying to think of some more, but uh, that, that there's a lot of there, there's entire compilations of it and stuff. But, were there local uh, bands that you're like you mentioned the astronauts and stuff? Were there yeah. local bands that you were seeing at that? Point? I, oh, I didn't get to see anybody. Yeah. You know, I was seven years old. I mean, the yeah. closest <laughs> I came to see the astronauts was when the leader Bob Demon, whose mother ran the office at my elementary school. <laughs> came to our second grade class to show us his dog. And me and one other girl in the class knew who he was. Like, days were, Bob Demon's coming to our school. Bob Demon's coming to our school. And then, then he shows up. But uh, he might not have been afraid of, like, a a big crowd of rowdy people at Tulagi's nightclub wanting to hear him play. But a room of second graders was another story. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, uh, he's called a Malamute and... and doesn't really say much. You walking down the aisle, you you can pet him if you want. And, and <laughs> that was my first encounter with a rock star. Um, so were there like you're seven years old, you know? But punk eventually starts kind of happening. What you what are the first sort of signposts you see that there's like this new music kind of revolution going on? Well, um, the Ramones already had one, maybe yeah, it's got to be just one album out. And then the main clerk at Trader Tape in later years, Rick Stott, um, who would eventually come out to the Bay Area after I did, and for a while was the board op who was part of the Maximum Rock and Roll radio show. He was going to law school and stuff. But anyway, um, he said, yeah, I've heard about there's this whole compilation of New York City punk bands called Live at CBGB's. And uh, he just heard about it. That was all. (laughs) I was like, hmm, what could this mean? And then, um, then a store opened in Denver, and I see the ad in the college paper, like, oh my God, there's Yardbird's picture sleeves in the ad. What is this store? And I go to the store, it's called Wax Tracks, and there is John Denver's greatest hits with nails in his eyes, with blood coming down on the front door. And I walk in, and here's these guys with way shorter hair than most 70s people, leather jacket, no shirt on, handing me a joint and whatnot, and that would be Jim Nash and Danny Flesher and that store turned out to be quite the electrifying meeting place. I mean, they were really into glam and Bowie and New York Dolls and Roxy Music and Gene Vincent and some other things. And um, little did I know that they were openly gay as well, which was almost unheard of then. So they helped build that underground scene in Denver as well, which Mm -hmm. took no small amount of nerve. But, um, But they also began paying attention to what was going on in Britain, as in Sex Pistols, as in shortly after Anarchy in the UK came out, it still has not been refuted to my knowledge that the first copies anywhere in the United States showed up at Wax Tracks. Oh, wow. And whenever they'd do some outrageous thing or vomit on themselves at a press conference just to annoy everybody, you know, the papers would come over, so they, that would go up on the wall. This is important, guys. <laughs> and sure enough, it was. And then singles began coming in, 
And uh, I heard one that was probably neat, neat, neat by the damned who didn't have the album out yet. It's like, oh my God, what is that? What is that? Ah, just some punk single from England. And that way, it wasn't, he, he, I wasn't even allowed to touch it or look at it or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, Nash was a man of strong opinions in many ways, but uh, give me all kinds of shit for buying Krautrock things out of their used bins. And a lot of synthesizer stuff. What are you buying that for? <laughs> and then word gets around the Ramones are coming to Denver. And they were opening for a radio rock band called Night City, the one with Ray Manzarek and Nigel Harrison, pre Blondie in it, and a Whoa. prima donna. It was just boring FM radio okay. rock, though, and stuff. Not real good. Quite but, the lineup, though. But the, um, at least those two. Yeah. But the uh, opener was the Ramones. And so. We go down there, and there's a little horseshoe at this little, you know, major label testing ground place where all the music industry people with their Kenny Loggins dues and their neatly trimmed beards and corduroy jackets with patches on them and whatnot. They're all there to look at Night City. And there's their women who just had their hair done 20 style because Joni Mitchell just did with little flowers and stuff. And then surrounding the front of the stage was people who were there to see the Ramones. Who at that point, I liked them, but I also thought they were kind of funny because the songs were so short and lyrics like beat on the brat with a baseball bat or now I want to sniff some glue and now I have something to do and those are the entire lyrics of the song. <laughs> what is this? So me and some of my other friends would occasionally put that on in between tripping out on kraut rock or prog rock records while smoking a bunch of weed. As a palate cleanser. Or something, <laughs> yeah. But of course I had to go. Yeah. And uh, you know, by then there was, there was a little bit of a buzz that this could wind up being something important. And then these four degenerate looking guys in black leather jackets come out and one chord on Johnny's guitar and you knew it was going to be way louder than anybody was prepared for and Ebbets Field was a sit-down club. You couldn't leave. You could. You had to sit there and watch the Ramones even if you were a big music executive and stuff sitting behind these creepy misfits in the front row. And that was part of the fun was just watching these people be more more terrified please make it stop no more more yes 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 more 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 and they were so powerful yet so simple and I was starting to think god anybody could do this I could do this hmm Maybe I should do this. Finally, I have a purpose in life. And meanwhile, Joseph Pope had gone backstage because it was two sets a night kind of thing. I'm like, yeah, I was just backstage talking to the Ramones. You can talk to a rock star? Wow. <laughs> Unheard of. So back we went and we're hanging with the Ramones. And then uh, Rick Stott talked both Ebbets, because he had a radio show in Boulder too, and people kind of knew who he was. They, he talked Ebbets Field into opening the next night and letting the Ramones have a headline gig because they didn't have a gig and then uh, turned out the Ramones that during the day they went to Wax Tracks and then pronounced it the best record store they'd ever seen and, uh, and keep in mind these are guys from New York yeah. and um, they needed an opener and so there was a local 
punk, punkish band called the Ravers. And suddenly, if they're going to have a high-profile thing opening for the Ramones to the handful of us who were there the night before, <laughs> they were going to need roadies. So all of a sudden, me and Joseph and my friend Sam Turner, we were the roadies for the Ravers. Felt 10 feet tall. All you people said I was a loser in school and my family had never amounted to anything. Look at me now! I am a roadie for the Ravers, God damn it! And it was also the Ramones were very down to earth and would talk to you and stuff. Very nice people. And, you know, they signed my albums, which I'd never have had anybody do that before. I mean, Leave Home had just come out. so And you still have those records, I oh, bet. Of course, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's also, you know, the reason, you know, I try to, you know, if it isn't like the, wor- the, the absolute wrong time to do it, yeah, I'll try and sign people's stuff. Yeah. Within, reason because it's you know can't forget how i felt when the ramones signed my album mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so had you seen the ravers before they had that opening no no that was your first time seeing it. were you aware of them and like how did you a little bit and i they gotten a little bit of a write-up i can't remember whether they even the term punk was even used but just playing rock and roll was an act of rebellion in itself mm-hmm in the Denver Boulder area because it was so country rocky mellow hanging planty don't harsh my mellow type people that this was all a breath of fresh air yeah air and uh the singer was Mark Campbell who already had been something of a controversy seeking beat poet in town and then um apparently reading a nude at least once and so she had to do to get attention in Boulder <laughs> and uh <laughs> He was writing reviews for the Colorado Daily, the college paper, and he was a little more in-your-face about it than a lot of other people were. So I was like, oh, well, this is kind of a character. Oh, he's in this band. Oh, this is the kind of guy who should have his own band. (laughs) And what do you know? It was a good band, too. Yeah. And listening to the recordings that survived, which, you know, are not the highest quality, but at least they're there, in retrospect, they had more of a 60s garage sound, and even the very, very early ones from 76, they almost sound more like Steely Dan, oh. with a very strong reggae influence from the beginning and stuff. They signed to a major, right, at some point? Well, they, eventually they moved to New York, and Rick Stott was their manager by then. He took them to New York, and they only kept one roadie, which was Sam Turner, and... Uh, Really, really had a had a struggle there as people who go, especially to New York, chasing a dream do. Mm-hmm. I was kind of bummed they left me behind, but that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I, I went west <laughs> instead, and where the scene was a lot younger in average age because it wasn't all over twenty one clubs and stuff, and. Um, so eventually they, they they had enough of a identity crisis. They changed their name to The Nails, and there were some personnel changes. I think Mark and Dave Kaufman, the keyboardist, might have been the only ones eventually by the time that The Nails had their big hit, 88 Lines, about 44 Women. It's the same band. You know, that band started as the Ravers yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. Now you know. And now, the, but like... You had a band, too, shortly thereafter, right? Like the Healers? That wasn't really a band. Did you have a band, though, in Colorado? It was that compilation no. with, that has It was me, me and my friend John Greenway and sometimes Sam Turner, you know, waiting. If one of our places and the parents weren't home, you turn on a cassette recorder <laughs> 
and go add instruments you don't know how to play and see what happens. <laughs> but that, that, those some of those songs have been released now, right? Oh, uh, there's a compilation. Two, yeah, on yeah. Rocky Mountain Low. So when you were looking at, because you moved to go to university, right? Or you just moved to get out of Colorado? Both. Okay. Were you thinking of other places other than San Francisco or other than the area? I, I well, I mainly looked at Evergreen State College mm-hmm. and universities of California at Santa Cruz because they didn't have grades and they didn't have fraternities and sororities and a yeah. big sports thing. And so that was the attraction. And... Uh, also was like, oh, Evergreen's kind of close to Seattle. And then uh, it slowly dawned on me, you know, the, 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 the Santa Cruz was closer to San Francisco. And by the time I actually got there, yeah, word had gotten out about crime and the nuns and that there was punk stuff going on there, too. And me and another punk-leaning guy named Michael Ellis, um, who I met in UC Santa Cruz, we went to the Mabue for the first time. Oh, wow, we're going to go see some punk rock. And we pay to get in, and then we find out it's metal night. (laughs) And metal at that point doesn't mean cool metal. It means 70s dinosaur cheese metal and not even even hair band cheese. I mean, in other words, mostly weak hard rock that... Has time has it, its time had come and gone, so I would say seeing the way those bands acted and what they sounded like and whatnot, it really kind of crystallized for me the division between seventies hard rock and and punk. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can imagine which way I went. And sure enough, eventually another punk rocker appeared, and you know, dressed in an old suit and a tie and a white shirt, just you know, making faces at one of the metal bands and going out of his way to annoy them as much as possible. And then Mike said, oh my God, I think I know that guy. That's Russell. And it turned out, yep, it was Russell Wilkinson who they'd gone to a high school for Americans in London, I think. (laughs) And Taylor, it was, was, yeah, but now he's changed his name to Will Shatter. And he was like, oh, hi, to me. are you in a band? Uh, no, no, I can't really play anything or anything. Why does that matter? I've been playing bass for two days, and I'm in a band. We're playing tomorrow night. <laughs> and so that was the first real punk show. It was, it was a, a little uh, lo- lower floor, a little warehouse space, and the Avengers were the main band. And, uh, and then the, the band that Will was in, it really did sound like he'd been playing bass for two days. And, and, uh, and, the, and but they were called Grand Mall. Did they record anything? Did they go no, on? No, okay. no, they didn't last very long. But the grand, the singer for Grand Mall was Don Vinyl, who went into the offs. Oh, wow. And yeah. Will and Craig Gray started Negative Trend. Holy so God. that's what Grand Mall was. So a significant band nonetheless. Did you see like Patti Smith when she came through Colorado? Or were there any like, no. Talking Heads? Or were you gone by that point? I was gone by that point. I did see Talking Heads at UC Santa Cruz of all places. Oh, yeah. The 77 album came out and enjoyed that. So like I guess and, like, the, and the way that was the only time I ever met David Byrne was they were doing a record store in store a little store in Santa Cruz that was hip to punk and new wave and other things called Cymbaline and I tried describing the different little concept mini campuses mini colleges at UC Santa Cruz most of which were named after different corporations and they were playing at Kresge College and I described it part way to him and then having never been there he finished my sentence and described it really well (laughs) 
very astute guy even then. Yeah, of so, course. I guess, like, what was it like going from, like, kind of that embryonic kind of punk scene that you left in, in Denver and in Colorado to, like, San Francisco where, like you said, crimes already happened, there's uh, the Avengers going on, and, and it seems like things are really going off. Yeah, they were, and so after one quarter of college, I left and then went back to Boulder to get some money together, doing very dirty uh, aromatic laundry at a nursing home, and then uh, got the money together and went back out. And, like, so uh, when you first got there, man, there's so many things I want to talk to <laughs> So when you first got there, like, who are some of the bands that, you know, I mentioned the Avengers, Grand Mall, obviously, now, too, but who are some of the other bands that were kind of ruling the roost that but crime had already broken up right no oh they were still going oh by the yo very much so yeah no, but i i uh you know i i think yeah i had seen crime before i went back from santa cruz and seen avengers dills hadn't moved up yet but they came up and played in a double bill with the zeros that was my second real punk show and uh trying to think of what else and iggy came through too and uh then when I got back, um, again, I'd driven like, uh, I just crashed by the side of the road, woke up at dawn in Utah, drove all the way to San Francisco, and dropped off some stuffs, and then went straight to the Mabuhe, and oh, this band called Negative Trend is playing with the nuns, and oh, okay, and I walk in, oh my god, it's Will, it's Craig, and it's a much wilder <laughs> singer, that would be Roz. <laughs> and they've got a drummer who can play now and yeah. stuff. And uh, is that be best? And then the and then single, came right? oh much before yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then out came the nuns who were kind of they had a little bit of a jock audience by then, and I felt they were playing up to them and stuff. And it quickly became apparent that like you know. We, we, we of course we owe it for the you know, for the first generation crime and the nuns and Mary Monday was the other one from very early on, but then you know I quickly kind of allied myself with the Avengers the the the, the group that was the Avengers Dills Mutants Sleepers UXA Negative Trend that was generation number two. And they were much more of a community and cooperated with each other and traded off headlines and whatnot. And whereas if, if you opened for crime, there would only be one other band on the bill, you, and they would take almost all the money and stuff. So Who was that Mary Monday? What was that other person you said, Mary Monday? Or yeah. Who's, I've never heard She that. just fronted a punk band for a while, which was gone by the time I moved wow. back. There is a single, though, called I Gave My Punk Jacket to Ricky. Oh, that's that band. Yeah, that's I've heard Mary that Monday. Song. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. yeah. Somebody took the time to actually fold the paper sleeve over so it met across the middle and back and safety pinned them all shut and stuff. Were the maggots from San Francisco? That was later. That's yeah, later, though. Yeah, I'm not sure that was ever a live band, but... Uh, oh, it was just like a studio project? I think it was just, yeah, a one-off studio project of people having fun, yeah. Oh, crazy, that's amazing. So I guess, like... Where did your influence come from? Because, like, everyone you talk to that's into hardcore and punk that kind of got into it early on says that it was hearing the Dead Kennedys and hearing, you know, your vocal delivery that kind of, like, awakened them to this aggression in punk. 
Where was that? How influence? could that possibly have influenced you, Mr. Cookie Monster? Well, I'm influenced All by... All the people go... Bleh. I'm influenced by you influencing Jerry A, influencing me. So it's your influence. I, I think you might be overrating my influence. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm there, talking about, but, I'm talking about uh, Gerard Cosloy. I'm talking about like people that were into like the first wave on the East Coast. It was the Dead Kennedys tour. That was the first time a lot of them got to see it. Like... You know, like or and flag too early on as well. Well, that know. that that there were two early Dead Kennedys tours over there, and one we went over as an unknown band, and California Uber Alice showed up from the pressing plant partway when we were there. The Offs had been out, the Screamers had been out, and wowed everybody. And um, people, yeah, you got to go to New York, you got to go to New York, and of course we got there, and it was a very very difficult thing. Yeah. And um, yo, here you can you can play at Max's and you'll play two sets opening for Voodoo Shoes. They will headline because Donna or this, um, Jimmy Destry from Blondie's sister is in the band. <laughs> that was how far the club scene had sunk. It was like everybody, oh, it was an X something or other, mm-hmm. and, and that was that. And the Misfits existed, but I could never find them. I love that bullet EP, but I could never find them. And then I saw posters for the Mad on the street, but um, didn't realize how good they were till I brought the single home from there. I was like, oh my God, is this good? So, uh, but I don't even know whether the <clears throat> the thing I saw advertised even happened when I was there or yeah, not. I don't yeah. remember. But um, so it was a rough one. It was kind of like you know, I don't think I was the only person in the band thinking, well, now we've done New York and that. I think we kind of run our course here. But may, in my case, maybe I'll wait and see what happens when the single comes out, just in case something happens. <laughs> and, needless to say, something happened. Yeah. So then the next time we were out, Fresh Fruit had done really well in England, and so then, then only then, months later, did it come out in the United States. And um, so there was suddenly kind of a high-profile tour of the East Coast, and because we came from the West Coast, where things were fiercer for the most part, and plus it was also one of the things that made the Mabuhe scene so magical and brought in the kind of people it did, was that it was all ages, as were a lot of the shows in L.A., and I believe Vancouver as well, and that the you know the best time to do these kind of things is when you're too young to know better mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so um you know it, it's uh it was re- that was I, we knew that was really really important at that point especially after seeing what the over 21 thing had done where the the CBGB's bands we all know had gotten way bigger so they didn't play there anymore and then there was this kind of snobby thing called the mud club where you had to wait outside and maybe the doorman thinks you're cool enough and you can come in and that's how you got in and then they would never announce if anybody was playing there so then oh did you hear DNA played the mud club last night and we weren't there and I'm like what kind of alleged scene is this (laughs) this is stupid this is evil and uh, so we came back, we insisted on all ages shows as much as we could possibly get them. And that was what brought a lot of people in. I mean, one, the, the, the one that I really didn't dig was having to go on stage at noon because that was the only time a venue would let us play if it was going to be an all ages show. <laughs> and the New York Music Press said we were stooping to gimmicks because we were letting all underage people into our shows. I got so many letters for the next, God, I don't know, 
almost 10 years from people, even grunge bands and stuff later on, saying, yeah, the first our first exposure to punk or anything was that show yeah. at Bond's Casino, so at least it did for a lot of people what the Ramones did for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I forgot to mention with that Ramones show at Ebbets Field, what that turned out to be the cradle of, Dead Kennedys, The Nails, Angst, Velvet Monkeys and Gumball, because Don Fleming oh. was at that show. He's a Colorado He was guy. in the Air Force, and he was stationed oh, at Lowry Air wow. Force Base in Denver. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the Wax Tracks label, when yeah. Jim and Danny sold the store and moved to Chicago and started another Wax Tracks, you can count that one in as well. And Al Jorgensen claims he was at that show, too, but nobody knew him at the time or anything. Well, that's before he did special effects or any of those yeah, things. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So Cause He did briefly live in Colorado, yeah. You also, though, on that first, on that Big Day Candies tour, you were picking out all those opening acts, right? No, that was after that. That was after that? Because we learned our lesson with that first tour is sometimes <laughs> friends of promoter who don't belong on a bill with... <laughs> Just about anybody would be getting the gigs and stuff. Did you play you know, there, was a, the there was a mob joint in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and the you know the new wavy goofy pop band turned out to be rather thug like and stuff. And uh, the promoter in Philadelphia actually had us play with a uh, a, a cheesy old school metal band, not good good old school metal band with swastika armbands on, Whoa. called Earthling. Wow. Because he thought it might be funny or something. I don't know. Well, sorry, Lee, it wasn't funny. And, uh, yeah, but we tried where we could, but we weren't able to get that many people. We know, although at least in, in Providence, Rhode Island, they had the freeze open for us. Oh, that's awesome. Back when they just had that one seven-inch with tourists. the ballot. Yeah, with the ballot on the other side. Took me forever to find one that they hadn't scratched the B-side out with scissors <laughs> on. <laughs> and it wasn't that bad a song. No. God. At least in Washington, D.C., we got to play with half Japanese. Oh, that's fucking awesome. So that, that was, I mean, I mean when they, they were arriving, me and Klaus looked at each other like, like, we feel like kids and we're about to meet the Beatles or something because <laughs> we were so into half Japanese. And they didn't disappoint. And, of course, by then the teen idols had been out to West and back. So I'd met Ian and Henry and Nathan Strashek and some of the others. And so, God, I hope they show up. I hope those people show up. And, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, D.C. felt like home after that and stuff. And I personally, even though I'm not straight edge, I really identified with the attitude because I came from Drug City. Yeah. And some people had already died and stuff. And one of my roommates was an alcoholic who'd started doing speed and was even selling it. And, you know, if you like the addict, you'll love their friends. And so having this instead and noticing how much more energy they had and stuff was a real breath of fresh air to me. Yeah, you know, you talked about how hard it was in that first tour to pick bands that would open for you. And I would imagine because it seems like you know these tours like you're saying like a lot of these bands that are writing to you saying that was my first exposure to punk was going to that Dead Kennedy show so many people I've talked to talk about how that was like the birth of the scene and then how like so many bands that were at that those shows would wind up kind of forming or so many people would wind up forming bands that were at those shows together 
and it you know that then maybe well into the next year i think was or maybe even before that was when black flag really started doing extensive yeah american touring and you know they got into a lot of cities we had never played in too mm-hmm. so um you know they were helping plant a lot of other seeds and crack open cracking open scenes and you know either there would already be one band kind of starting or there might be more and Chuck and I would trade tips from time to time on some places and stuff. And, and DOA was on the circuit by this point too. Right? Yeah, I think Black Flag and DOA had more to do with cracking open the rest of North America than Dead Kennedys did. Yeah, no, I think it's the but I, I obviously you guys cracked open a lot of North America, but I think that East Coast tour and that's that's really like you know, not the birth of East Coast hardcore, but like you can tell oh, no. that's like the the germ that would help because because when we played at the 930 club in DC and those guys showed up you know they gave me de- cassette demos of minor thread yeah. and the DC youth brigade and void and law and order was another one government issue too so though they were all on their way and then at the end of the tour DOA came through up i can't remember where i met him probably in new york but then i rode down with Joey. He and his wife are traveling separately as some kind of a get-together, to, get getaway in their car on that tour. So <clears throat> DOA were playing a high school cafeteria, which the students with names like Ian and others had talked the school into letting them do it. So that was the show. Yeah. You know, DOA and uh, Minor Thread and SOA and Scream was on that bill and was not really down with the with the with the DC hardcore kids yet. Although, obviously, that changed in a year or two and quite nicely. And I think Government Issue played, but we didn't get there in time to CGI. Yeah, I think I I walked in when SOA was on the stage. So like. You know, at that point, also with DOA too, like they sound so different than those other bands, but I guess it's just the energy that unites everyone. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I had hung out with Henry in particular beforehand and then came back and stayed in his apartment and, uh, you know, and he'd seen half Japanese and they played with us and you know how Henry is a man of passionate opinions. He's, I will follow them anywhere. <laughs> and then he really liked DOA too, so... You, that was cool. Was he collecting records back then yeah. too? Yeah. So like, he had a different a different kind of collecting. Cause like he yeah. he would find bands he liked and then get every different edition of oh, okay. certain records. And luckily for him and others, there was a store out in Rockville, Maryland called Yesterday and Today, mm-hmm. run by Skip Groff, who uh, who had the Limp label on his own. And I do believe he financed the original Minor Disturbance EP mm-hmm. for Discord and the Teen Idols, and then just kind of let him take it from there. And just very, very supportive. Plus, another one of those stores that it would take you a month to go through it all. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, there was a section a foot and a half long of every local record Link Ray had played on that not all of them good, but, you know, because he just... You know, they knew where to put all that stuff. And then later, one of the co-founders of Touch and Go Dave St- magazine, Dave Stimson, yep. moved out, and he was working at Yesterday and Today. So, boy, did they have amazing things. New stuff that they'd import and older stuff, too. Well, that's how the Bad Brains were the Vile Tones. 
and apparently they used to cover uh, they did used to cover Screaming Fist in their huh. set so that's the uh, that would make sense that's a Canadian DC connection right through that, that store that would right make there. sense boy on that miserable 79 tour man if only we'd known about the bad brains yeah cause you know I heard that Black Dots record I was like oh my god <laughs> they were that good that early and that west coast sounding and none of us knew who they were but you, were there other bands that you saw on the, that early tour that you were like okay this is you're mixing up too early tours. No, I mean that first tour that first tour that was disastrous where you said you oh were yeah um, the neighborhoods oh yeah their records don't even begin to do them justice really? but when I saw them live they were so explosive so charismatic really great songs and you know I thought you know this is a magic kind of combination of the jam and the dills this band is going to be huge but didn't happen we're like and then when you kind of went back out on that next tour where you there were more bands that you kind of like you know kindred spirit type things who were some of the bands that you felt like I guess it's on the let them eat jelly beans comp like the bands that were really kind of yeah yeah younger fans we met afterwards why are why are you the only good band in America and I'm like don't have you ever heard of Black Flag haven't you ever heard of DOA haven't you ever no <laughs> every band on that comp and so you know originally the concept for let them eat jelly beans was to le- relaunch alternative tentacles as a real label <coughs> and do a compilation for Britain to show Britain what else is going on <laughs> that they're missing. And little did we know it would have a bigger impact on the European continent than it did in England, although it did well there too. And then it got released in America and had a big effect over there as well. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make sure it wasn't just all punk bands. I put punk on one side and the more unusual stuff or stuff I thought was really well done but not getting proper attention on the other. I mean, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD, had just started to catch in England. I thought, wait a minute, Voice Farm's as good as they are, and there's this really cool song. Let's put that on at the end. You know, I wanted to show the variety and not just put blinders on. Well, that's why that compilation, I think, stands up today so well, is because unlike a lot of compilations from that time, it's right, it exposes punk as being this huge spectrum of sounds. Yeah, unfortunately, it'll never come out again in any form. I mean, we got contracts on all those songs for a whopping three years. It seemed like (laughs) such a long time. And then it came time later, hey, we should put this back out again and trying to clear it with everybody. We ran into all kinds of people who got more businessy and stuff and whatnot. We, We wouldn't be able to do it again. Well, Jello, I've talked to you for a long time, and I want to talk to you for way longer, but I'm not going to ruin your night and force you to sit here and talk to me forever. But we got to talk about this moment in history in Canada and your key involvement in it, because you, in my opinion, are the uh, impetus for Canada's cannabis legalization. Uh, I find that <laughs> really hard to believe. Well, you know, Canada's Prince of Pot, who I will say on the record... Definitely don't agree with him on a lot of other issues, but I do agree with him about cannabis. But his exposure to cannabis was entirely through being a fan of you and your work. And that would be Dave Emery? Mark Emery. Mark Emery, sorry. Mark Emery, no. Mark is a uh, a controversial figure in Canada, but it's like amazing. Like, once again, I think to me, nothing illustrates how important this genre, this novelty genre that died in 1978, is for the world because through 
Jello Biafra and the Dead Kennedys, who have influenced tons of people musically, but Jello Biafra also affected real prohibition change when it comes to cannabis. Well, it's always <laughs> nice to help start fires, I guess, to <laughs> fill it in here. You were explaining a little more to me in the car yes. what Emery has done and how he's suffered for his vision and claiming that he didn't realize all the medicinal value and you know, and when you make it into paper and clothing and everything else and save the forest until I did my Grow More Pot spoken word piece, which is off the I Blow Minds for a Living spoken word album, the third one. And he had brought me into London, Ontario. I think maybe if he really is crediting me, which I'm still having a hard time believing, um, that I would have that much impact like that. I really, there's got to be more to it than that. Well, but anyway. You mentioned, you mentioned The Emperor Has No Clothes. Right, book, right, which, the ja by Jack Herrer. Which yeah. he tried to order and was a banned book in Canada at the time. Oh. And he found out that all marijuana books and magazines and publications, anything that promoted cannabis was illegal in Canada. So he starts smuggling that stuff in just uh. to be anti-censorship. And it starts selling really well for him. So he started bringing in High Times magazine. That starts selling really well for him. So eventually he started bringing in Jack Herrer and all these writers and eventually converted himself to become a cannabis activism, activist. I think some of the activism was going on by the time he brought me in because he made it clear he was very anti-censorship yes. and was already running into trouble with authorities over one thing or another. Yes, at that for, but he had not realized about cannabis activism until you blew his mind for a living. He might have heard the album and then brought me in. I think that he did. He heard the album and then brought you in afterwards. Yeah. 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 He, but it was really but it, like once again though that you know, he was into activism, he was into anti-censorship stuff. He was running for libertarian in uh, in the London government, but it wasn't the cannabis stuff yet. That is entirely where he gives credit to you on. So who would ever think that you would become the Biggest pothead, and he's in crediting influences. me with it. He credits you with it, wow. yeah, hundred well, percent. And he, because he says, "Thanks, that, Mark." Well, I think like <laughs> again, glad to be the gateway drug, <laughs> glad to be of disservice to all the people with their stupid goddamn war on drug laws. What I said is, speaking of laws and stuff, at uh, the uh, Rock Fest in Quebec, we just played at. You know, it was only little 30-minute infomercial sets from a lot of the punk bands mm -hmm. on the smaller so-called Tony Sly stages. Even so, I couldn't keep my mouth shut, and it occurred to me what to say during the uh, middle portion of California Uber Alice was that um, there used to be really good asylum laws in Canada that Pierre Trudeau put in to help, in his way, bring an end to the Vietnam War. And it certainly did, because so many people fled to Canada so they couldn't be drafted and sent off to kill and to die and whatnot, including a close friend of my family who lives in Jasper to this day. And uh, then after 9 I think after the Iraq invasion, when it looked like Clown Prince W might actually start drafting people, um, and they were talking about going into Syria and North Korea and maybe uh, trying to go after Chavez in Venezuela and whatnot. One of 
Bush's guys on the Pentagon Advisory Council even said, let's not forget Lebanon has a blood debt to us because of the Marines that got blown up when Reagan was president. I mean, it was just nuts. Mm-hmm. Nuts to the point where the uh, Homeland Security people pressured Jean Cretchen into getting rid of those asylum laws so you can no longer flee America to Canada simply because you're trying to avoid being sent to war or subjected to any number of other horrible things that might be done by somebody like President Trump or President Mike Pence or whatever. So my plea to the audience there was to start pressuring your MPs and everybody else to pressure Justin Trudeau and your national parliament to, for crying out loud, change those asylum laws back to the way they were. Because if Trump really does, and so, you know, at five in the morning when he can't sleep, run out of his phone, dies, so he has to launch a nuclear bomb at North Korea instead, and then, or or launch it at Tehran or whatever, then all hell breaks loose, and people are going to have to have somewhere to go to flee the policies of the Trumpkins. Yeah, it's like a, it's a really scary time, and it's very frightening to think that. Not frightening, but, you know, comforting, I guess, maybe even, that uh, we're living in a world that you sung about <laughs> for years. You've been singing about the world we're in. Yeah, and rapping about it, too. And, and I thought many years ago, you know, maybe I should quit writing these worst-case scenario things <laughs> because they keep coming true. Exactly. Maybe you should take a page from the Raver's Nails book and maybe go a little new wave now. <laughs> I only can do what comes out of me. <laughs> well, Jello, better at writing some stuff than other things. Uh, this has been amazing. Thank you for the inspiration. Thanks for doing this. All right. Well, you don't have a bad band yourself, dude. Where's all the new little weird seven inches you'd usually bring me? We got to go to my house. We'll go to my house now. Uh, so, Zolar X, you're saying you didn't find them at a record store. No, I mean, I knew about them even in, during their heyday in the glam scene. And I was somebody who still, I, I, you know, liked the idea of dangerous hippies. I had long hair and whatnot and, you know, greasy zit-encrusted freak. And the freaks wore that label proudly like, like people who would call themselves queer would take an insult and turn it around later. And I'm grateful there were so many freaks in my school because of the university and the... Of Colorado, the professors, the scientific institutes, those people's kids and whatnot. There were so many weird people yeah. at Boulder High and even in the other more suburban jock school, Fairview, that we never even all knew each other and stuff. And um, so, But that was where I was at. I mean, when they started pushing, oh, let, now the way to rebel children is to wear platform shoes and put <laughs> lipstick on and get a goofy-ass n- m- b- modified crew-cut mullet like David Bowie. And I was like, no, 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 none of these people are going to tell me what to do. <laughs> and I don't think I'm the only person who felt that way, and I think that was one of the reasons that glam failed as a street movement in the way that punk succeeded. Punk, you made your own look. Mm -hmm. And it scared the shit out of a lot more people, too. But anyway, one day on the sidewalk, I found this magazine called Rock Scene. 
and I'd never seen it before. And it was either Lenny Kay or Lester Banks. I think Lenny Kay was his magazine. There are pictures of Wayne County in there. Like, who is this? And then they had a section in Rock Scene where people could send in pictures of their own band and describe themselves. They were trying to push new bands yeah. and things. And here was one of Solar X. <laughs> You know, with with pointed ears and other things, it was actually a review of them and so, or something. And when they played, and I was like, "This is the most ridiculous band I've ever seen." But then the review described them as a cross between Pink Floyd and Black Sabbath. So I thought, "Wow, I wonder what they sounded like." Years and years later, on a box on the floor at Aquarius Records in San Francisco. I find what turns out to be a Zolar X bootleg, the clear vinyl one. That's what turned out. That's turn, what... Turned out well. In a way, it is. But yeah. Weigar, Weigar is the guitar player in Zolar X, basically bootlegged his own band <laughs> after the fact and pressed them up himself. It's like, okay, this is going to be. I, I have to hear this band. And I put it on, and it just blew me through the wall. It was so much better than I ever thought it was going to be. And it was kind of like, to me, it was like the missing link between Chrome and Cheap Trick, or Chrome and the Stooges, or something. <laughs> I was just so impressed. Like, God, if I can ever find these people, this needs a real release and stuff. And years later, a guy interviewing me about the Evil Dead Kennedys lawsuit said in passing that he knew where Weigar was. And I'm not sure Weigar's name was even on the bootleg. He's like, oh, oh, that's one of them. And he has all the masters. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I went out to see Weigar, who was living in Nevada and in Fallon at the time and um, sharing a... a double white I think it was was with his mom and stuff and uh, sure enough he had him and everything and you know that proved to be quite the rebirth of Weigar yeah. himself where you know he was so happy it had come out and suddenly all this energy came back and he'd been sober for many many years so uh, you know yeah yeah we're just so happy about this hey we're getting new costumes made right now we're gonna start playing again I thought <laughs> Uh oh! What have I done? <laughs> they but sure enough, records. It, yeah, great records. Yeah, I mean, I mean, plus it turned out to be a decent live yeah. band, and of course, Weigar just getting to play his music again and everything was just meant so much to him. I mean, he wrote most of the music, as far as I know, and he um, he came from a family of classical musicians and stuff. Oh. He might have been trained classical on violin, or that might have been one of the other ones. I don't know. And his real name is Stephen Delabosca, and one of them went on to be in uh, like a Kill by Death band too, right? Like, who got that was Weigar. Yeah, yeah, that was Weigar. Um, well, I could talk to you about every record you put on AT, but we'll leave it at this one, Jello. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hoping. You know, they make all these documentaries and biopics, and there is a Zolar X one that's kind of been in limbo oh. for a while, a documentary, and. Um, if there ever ought to be a biopic just to the adventures of those guys. Well, you read about it in oh, the liner notes. Yes. On the album, somebody was stealing pointed ears off the Star Trek set <laughs> and bringing them to them so they would have a supply of them. And their spacesuits came from ski shops. 
<laughs> oh, there's just so many. Like, like the you know the the the, the missed success opportunities when like Ace freely missed them by like one band that they talked about in the liner notes. Or well, there, there was another producer who wanted to make them into the next monkey. Oh yeah, the TV show. I can't show. remember what one of them did at that meeting that decide made them decide <laughs> they never wanted that band in the same room with them again. But uh, well. Once again, as I say, I could talk to you or, about this forever, and I'm sure we will talk about Zola. Apparently, sometimes they'd even go in costume to Hollywood parties and talk in a space alien language to each other. Yeah, they never broke character. Which apparently, uh, supposedly, Ron Ashton got so disgusted with that one night, he <laughs> punched out Weigar outside. <laughs> oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I even I even have a I even have a Zolar X name now. You do? Yeah. What's your Zolar X? Weigar renamed me Zaxion Viceroy. <laughs> I think with two X's. Thank you, Jello, for coming on the show. And Jello Biafra will be back for a part two. Uh, there's no way I can. Uh, let him get away with only doing that because that was awesome. Um, there's a lot more to get to, of course, with Jello. Hopefully, there'll be part three and four and five and six. But once again, there would not have been a part one. Assuredly, there would not have been a part one if it had not been for Melanie and Eric. Melanie and Eric, thank you both so much. Um, and Kayla, uh, who uh, babysat my kids uh, for me, thank you for extending the time that you could babysit for them because. This thing ended up uh, taking 12 hours to get done. So <laughs> thank you, Kayla. Thank you, Melanie. And thank you, Eric, because this was a super, super fun episode. And thank you, my kids, for understanding that Daddy wasn't going to be home that night because I was out record shopping. And also, I'm going to plug uh, two places that we went record shopping at. Uh, Cops, you know, check out Cops, but also check out Grasshopper Records as well. Two great stores. Jello freaked out over both of them. Uh, really fun times. Cops, if you're looking for 45s. Grasshopper, if you're just looking for a great place to hang out in the city. Grasshopper is one of the coolest record store owners. In, in you know, it's just a, a really fun place to hang out. And trust me, we hung out in both those places for hours and hours. And also, bear witness from a tribe called Red who came out and hang out too. It was a fun ass day. I'm telling you, this was a crazy. Fun day involving hanging out with lots of friends. So, yeah, we'll, we'll explain the whole story on Footnotes in an upcoming edition of Footnotes, uh, the other podcast, which we haven't had a chance to do in forever. Sorry, Chris. Uh, anyway, I got to go get on this plane because I got to go to New York so I can do this live podcast. So come out early if you are in New York for or Brooklyn, I should say, sorry, for the House of Vans. The Royal Headache Show with, of course, the Downtown Boys. I'm going to be doing live podcasts there. Thank you very much again to Van Shoes for making this thing possible and for bringing me down there. And go over to houseofvans.com to find out more information about upcoming House of Vans events and cool things like maybe turn it a punk popping up there. That's pretty cool. And that's about it for today's show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, anyone can do this. Go out there and make your own culture. And, and, and yeah, just keep, keep fighting for what you, for what you want to do, you know, keep fighting for what you believe in, keep fighting for the, 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 the stuff you want to make because eventually you'll be able to do that. Anyway, I'm home for a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, pack my bag before I have to head out the door again. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Love you. And I will see you next week. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.